Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hi, Caroline. Hi. It is your turn this week. You're up <laughs> on the chopping block or the um, the throne. I don't know. What, what do we call it? Up on the throne? Yeah, you're up sitting up on the throne this week. <laughs> the queen of the podcast. Mm. Mm, king of the castle, king of the castle. <laughs> well, Sean, uh, you and I'm sure our listeners know by now that I have a deep and abiding fear of air travel. Uh, yes, I do know that. And uh, what an appropriate week to discuss this as we prepare to board a plane for Florida. Mm-hmm. Planes, helicopters, whatever it is, I am so afraid of flying that I have to get prescribed Xanax before every flight. And vodka. Well, that's not prescribed. (laughs) Uh, But for as much as I hate being on planes, I do love to travel, and I have since I was little. One of the best travel experiences for me previously was on a cruise, and I would take one right now if I could. It's great. Right now? Yeah, probably. All all the virus stuff and everything. You're, You're jumping on a boat? It's not much better than a plane, I think. Yeah, but it's for a week. That's true. Well, usually, Sean, I feel safer on a cruise. Closer to the ground, at the very least. Well, closer to the water. It's closer to the ground. It's not thousands of feet in the air. But the problem is that cruises aren't necessarily actually safer. And I'm not talking in terms of, like, sinking versus the crashing of an airplane, but crime-wise. And this is an aspect of cruise travel that is often covered up by cruise lines so as not to deter people from enjoying the all-you-can-eat buffet, buffet, buffet. (laughs) Yeah, Phoebe buffet. (laughs) Buffet on their way to the Bahamas or Alaska or wherever they've set sail to. This is the plot of much of succession. Spoiler alert. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um. This week, we're going to talk about cruise crime and cover-ups, and we're going to really explore it through the strange disappearance of Amy Lynn Bradley in March 1998. I've never heard of her. You you will soon. And I guess that was the cruise line's intention. (laughs) Maybe. Perhaps this episode will make me a little more ready to hop on a short flight and a little less eager to put my life into the hands of cruise lines. But let's begin with some statistics. According to CruiseJunkie.com, a website run by Canadian sociologist Ross Klein, more than 300 people went overboard while on cruises between 1995 and 2019. Can we dig into that name, CruiseJunkie.com? So he's into cruises. He's like, guys, I love it. And hundreds of people die every year. (laughs) Or maybe he's trying to, to get the cruise junkies to be like, hey... Guys, I know you came here thinking this was a pro-cruise site, but 
Check out these stats. It could be that he thinks cruises are junk and he created the website on Internet Explorer and thought that he should let <laughs> us know. Maybe. Over a third of the cruise overboards have been purported missing, while others were reported as suicides or other purposeful actions. In one of the most recent non-COVID-affected gatherings of data by the U.S. Department of Transportation, two U.S. citizens disappeared while on cruises during the three-month period from July 1st, 2019 to September 30th, 2019. Uh, when Before the whole cruise industry disappeared, basically, for a year and a half. Sure, but that was like the most recent bit of time. And two people's too many people. Yeah, I, I would say so. <laughs> Disappearances or overboard deaths are not the only crimes on cruises either, not by a long shot. At the end of 2019, the website Cruisely reported that there had been 137 total crimes reported in the, the past four quarters, including a 67% increase in sexual assaults just from the previous year. And I'm going to take a guess and say that uh, based on what you've already said, there's probably a lot of crimes going unreported. Mm-hmm. And there's also thefts, other kinds of assaults, all different sorts of things going on. Now, cruises are charged atmospheres, of course. The best of them are just floating parties at sea. You have a lot of people stuck in tight quarters and usually at the mercy of having access to unlimited alcohol. And um, they're all in vacation mode and they're ready to let loose. And criminals go on vacation, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. There's also the little fact that cruise ships do not have law enforcement officers present, but rather company-trained shipboard security officers. In an interview with Boston University News Service, um, a professor of maritime law at Tulane University named Martin J. Davies stated that he believes the whole process is problematic. Quote, if someone does report, for example, a sexual assault to one of these security officers, the security officer is supposed to tell the master of the ship. But if they do anything about it, then the cruise line is going to worry that it's going to have civil liability for not preventing the assault. So an awful lot of stuff just doesn't get reported because there's no independent law enforcement. Yeah. And you can just, um, you know, just like Waystar, just uh, uh, dust that under the rug. <laughs> yeah. And where does actual law enforcement figure in where it does? Much like Walt Disney World, cruise ships often operate with their own sets of rules and regulations. Yeah, but there aren't a couple people disappearing a, a, a month at Disney World. They're very good at covering it up. <laughs> That's just a joke. It's not true. Disney, don't come at me. Uh, cruise lines, they don't automatically report to the country they seem to be based in. Rather, they're registered in all different countries, and some have very different laws and very different ways of handling prospective crimes. Wait, why are these floating like vessels for hundreds or thousands of people the equivalent of Swiss banks? <laughs> why are they that's untraceable the, in different that's countries? That's the thing. It's, it's very, it's a lot when you get into it. For example, according to USA Today, only one major cruise ship, NCL America's Pride of America, is registered in the United States. One. Most of the big boats fly Bahamian... Bahamian? Bahamian, I think. Bahamian flags. That's Bahamas. Uh, but other popular registries includes, pa include Panama, Bermuda, Italy, Malta, and the Netherlands. 
In fact, according to Cruise Lines International Association, 90% of commercial vessels calling on U.S. ports fly foreign flags. Well, and I'm guessing you're just going to put it, register in, register it in whatever country has a big enough port to hang out in and really low taxes and regulations. Yeah, exactly. When crime goes down on a ship, the captain reports it to the country where the ship is registered, and then that country will decide if they'll do anything about it. That delay and lack of active, skilled investigation makes solving many of these crimes without obvious perpetrators extremely difficult. Well, and the fact that the government responding to these things almost never has its citizens at stake, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I know that American uh, law enforcement does get involved with American citizens, but, you know, they're not the main people on a case, so they're always kind of one step back. And they're certainly not the first people that are called. Considering thousands of people move through the ships every day and the ships are all on tight timelines and they're all constantly being cleaned and reset for new visitors, it's hard to solve cases. Well, and I imagine after some of these cruises, there's there's a lot of cleanup to, oh, yeah. to do. Uh, there's also the reality that cruise lines will pretty much do anything to stop news of crime on their ships from getting out, considering how negatively that knowledge would affect their reputation and conversely, their income from eager tourists. It's in this atmosphere that we had the first major cruise ship disappearance, but sadly, it's not the last. Um, we had one recently, I think it was a cruise ship worker named Rebecca Corium, who I would love to go over. That's a more recent case, uh, still ongoing. This is like a 2022 thing? No, I think it was probably before COVID, but like 20 teens. Um, and that one's like still actively in the media. And that kind of also shows us that not a ton has changed in the last 25 years since, uh, since, Amy Bradley's disappearance, aside from some technological improvements to help prevent and solve these kinds of crimes on ships. And that brings us to the case of Amy Lynn Bradley. Finally! <laughs> Amy Lynn Bradley was 23 years old when she boarded the Royal Caribbean International cruise ship Rhapsody of the Seas on March 21, 1998, headed for Curaçao, a Dutch Caribbean island from Puerto Rico. Amy had recently graduated from Longwood University near her home in Chesterfield County, uh, and that's in Virginia, and she graduated with a degree in physical education and was planning to start a new job at a computer consulting firm as soon as she got home. Mm -hmm. The week-long trip was supposed to be a family celebration, and Amy's parents, Ron and Iva, as well as Amy's 21-year-old brother, Brad, were all in tow to enjoy what would possibly be the last big family trip before the adult siblings found partners and started families of their own. Oh, God. You say somebody goes disappearing on a cruise ship, and you, you just picture that it's like going to be a group of young friends out there. Mm -hmm. This is a family trip. Yeah, and they were a close, close-knit family. And this kind of trip, um, we both took this kind of trip with our families after college, Sean. Yeah. Know, it's kind of bittersweet, but it's also a nice time to hang out with your parents more as like adult equals before naturally trimming those more dependent ties. You're starting to get into that uh, almost peerish phase where mm -hmm. you can get a beer together and you can swear and all that kind of, <laughs> that kind of stuff. In the episode of Disappeared, focusing on Amy's case, which I'll be heavily referencing, her mother, Iva, called it the trip of a lifetime, which would make what would eventually happen all the more tragic. And this is a really sad story. This reminds me a lot of Lisanne Froon and Chris Kremers, that disappearance that we covered uh, a while ago. Yeah. 
And, um, you know, even though this happened 25 years ago, I do want to emphasize that the family is still looking. Um, they're still missing their child, you know, so. So these are fresh wounds and we don't want to poke at them. Yeah, absolutely. This is just informational. No accusations or anything here. Amy was a confident young woman. She was raised to believe that she could do just about anything she put her mind to, and she often did. She was an athletic star in her youth, the only girl on the boys' basketball team, a star swimmer for years on the swim team, and she was a scholarship student at her college. Okay, so never not doing something. Mm-hmm. And um, importantly, a very skilled swimmer. Despite her inherent confidence, she had been apprehensive about the cruise. Like I said, she was a strong swimmer, and she was even a certified lifeguard, but she wasn't a big fan of large boats or the ocean, like the open ocean. Yeah, it's the dangerous part. Yeah. However, the idea of the trip was enticing enough to get her on board. The Bradley's cabin was situated on the 10th floor of the cruise, and though I'm sure it was tight with the whole family in one cabin, they had lovely views of the ocean, and they were enjoying the vibe which really reminded them of their family vacations before the kids had moved out. Well, my impression is on a cruise ship, only the, it's probably like a, probably not a super cramped, terrible position for them because only the expensive rooms on cruises have those portholes, right? They had a balcony, so yes. And um, I'll get into it a little bit later, but I think Ron had kind of won this trip or had been awarded it from his company as like an incentive type of thing. So it was probably a nice room. Uh, The family was having a great time, and a lot of people were taking notice of the outgoing Amy in particular. On an episode of Dr. Phil, Iva Bradley stated, When we were on the ship, we noticed immediately there was a tremendous amount of attention toward Amy from the crew members. After dinner, the waiter came out of the dining room and asked me where Amy was, and I asked him why, and he said, Well, we want to take her to Carlos and Charlie's. This was a restaurant at the first stop, which was Aruba. Mm Mm-hmm. When the waiter asked, I thought it was a, maybe a little forward of him to be asking those types of questions. When Amy, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was. When Amy came back, I said, the waiter wants to take you to Carlos and Charlie's with his friends. And then Amy looked at me and said, they're creepy. I'm not going anywhere with them. What a great choice. Frighteningly, the Carlos and Charlie's restaurant in Aruba was the last place Natalie Holloway was seen in 2005. So weird coincidence or maybe not a coincidence. Who knows? Do you think it's like a it's a spot for taking people? I don't know, but it's a weird coincidence. <laughs> the Bradleys attended a formal dinner on the night of March 23rd, two days after the cruise set sail from San Juan. The Rhapsody of the Seas had already stopped in Aruba and was cruising toward its destination of Curacao at this time. After the dinner, the family changed into casual clothes and headed to the upper deck for a poolside calypso party. The family danced the night away, courtesy of music by the ship's uh, house band, Blue Orchid, and both Bradley children made friends with ship crew and passengers thanks to their outgoing natures. Ron and Iva Bradley decided to pack it in around 1 a.m., which is pretty impressive considering I don't think my parents would have made it past 10. Your parents are a special case. (laughs) Your dad was a teacher for too long. (laughs) And uh, the parents left for the cabin. Amy and Brad, of course... We're still in the party mood, and the festivities migrated from the pool deck to the ship's dance club. So they went along. Brad hang, hung out with a couple of girls he met at the Calypso party, and in the dance club, the cruise videographer captured the last recorded images of Amy Lynn Bradley. 
She's dancing under blue lights, looking like she's having a great time. She's wearing a uh, short haircut and a light t-shirt. She looks happy. After a few hours at the club, Brad called it a night and headed back to the cabin around 3.45 a.m. Or arrived there around then. Amy followed, according to Brad, about 20 to 30 minutes later. Brad was sitting on the balcony when she returned, and the siblings sat together looking over the moonlit sea, talking and planning for the next day's excursion once they hit Curacao. So close to four o'clock, they're both in the room. On the balcony, yes. Brad left uh, the balcony around 4 a.m. to head into sleep, but Amy wanted to stay in the fresh air a while longer. Maybe she wanted to sober up a little bit, or just because it was a nice night in a pretty place. (laughs) Brad told her he loved her, which was a hallmark of this close-knit family, and went to bed. Sometime before sunrise, Ron Bradley would wake up and spot Amy still sitting outside on the balcony, and Ron recalled feeling relief at knowing the kids were both in the cabin and safe for the night. He went back to sleep. A short while later, sometime around 6 a.m., Ron was awakened again and looked once more out onto the balcony. Amy was gone, but she was also not in her bed. All that was missing along with Amy was her cigarettes and lighter, and she didn't even seem to have brought her shoes. She she apparently, and this is something that I read somewhere, she had packed nine pairs of shoes and they were all in the cabin. Well, here's my my immediate guess when I hear that is she went out for a smoke. Right. Because she probably can't smoke on her parents' balcony. Mm-hmm. Initially, Ron wasn't that concerned. Like you said, he thought maybe she was smoking on the top deck or watching the sunrise somewhere. But he did leave to go look for his daughter. Maybe it was his fatherly intuition guiding him. An hour later, um, he had gone through a bunch of halls and all the decks, and he still hadn't found Amy, so he was starting to feel panicked. Ron returned to the Bradley cabin to notify Iva and Brad, but on the way back, he ran into the head security officer of the Rhapsody, who he found in the hall about 40 feet from the Bradley room. Ron told the officer Amy was missing and went back to the room to wake Iva, who agreed that it was not like Amy to not tell them where she'd be. Sure. Well, yeah. I, I, at this point, you still probably have a little bit of, well, she wouldn't have wanted to wake us if she was if it was before five and she was just going for a smoke. Mm-hmm. But then where is she? Yeah, long smoke. Within minutes, they were heading back to notify officials of the disappearance and try to find Amy. Ron and Iva told the ship's captain that their daughter, one of his passengers, was missing and requested him to make an announcement on the ship so people would know to keep an eye out for Amy. Uh, That doesn't sound like something that cruise ship captains do. No, because the captain denied this request, saying he didn't want to disturb the other passengers. Oh, let's not disturb them. Mm Mm-hmm. The Bradleys began to beg the captain to let them talk to some sort of supervisor. And He's like, I'm the supervisor. <laughs> I'm the captain. Yeah. And they really were trying to get him to not let guests off the ship, which was about to dock in Curacao. Yeah. Because there were thousands of people. Um, and this was also denied. So the thousands of passengers disembarked in Curacao with an active disappearance unknowingly underway. And who knows who could have disembarked with them. Unknowingly to most of the passengers, knowingly to her family and to the authorities on the ship. Mm -hmm. The captain promised to conduct a thorough search of the ship despite this, but returned hours later to say they still hadn't found Amy. Very thorough. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, he said they searched every nook and cranny, but it had at least 10 floors, the ship. I don't think you could do that in a few hours. No, you couldn't. 
Horribly, the clock was literally ticking on the situation. The stop in Curacao was only meant to be like 12 hours, and then the Rhapsody would be going on to St. Martin. Okay, but not without a passenger. The captain posed an agonizing choice to the Bradleys. Stay with the ship onto the next stop or disembark in their original destination and look for Amy there. But, mm. Mm-hmm. So they decided to get off in Curacao and continue the search because the ship had been searched, but all these people had left. So maybe someone had seen Amy or was with her. I think you split it up. I think you. I, I would want somebody on the boat. Yeah, but now it's uneven and you're already missing one child. What's uneven? Well, there's three of them now instead of four, so you can't go two and two. Mom and Brad stay on the boat. Dad gets off on the island. That's what I would have done. But I, but I listen, I, I've never been in this situation. Yeah, and I think they were all very mentally, like, some Ron was apparently throwing up. Brad was, like, about to faint. Like, it was, it was a very frightening situation. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Uh, quote, we didn't have any instructions. We were just let off the ship, said Ron. So you were kind of left to fend for yourself. The Bradleys decided to make their way to the American embassy, which I think is pretty smart. And they took the step of setting up search grids to comb the ocean for Amy. It was uncertain when and where she might have gone overboard if she had. So the search was kind of vague. I mean, they did their best, but there's like a three hour period where it could have happened. The local Navy diligently looked for Amy, taking boats and helicopters to scan the waters off of Curacao for hours. Um, But there was a dead end. You know, just didn't find anything. The Bradleys decided to go back to the ship, which was now docked in St. Martin, and continue looking back on board, now supported by the FBI, who had gotten involved. Thanks to the embassy, I assume. Right. Cruise officials cooperated with both the search and the investigators, and the FBI began interviewing possible suspects. Yeah, once uh, Special Agent Fitzhugh is on the <laughs> scene or whatever, yeah, they're going to they're gonna listen. Mm-hmm. And the possible suspects, of course, included the Bradleys themselves because they're the people closest to Amy. Iva, in, uh, Iva appointed investigators toward those she thought had taken a special interest in Amy. And witnesses from the ship dance club that late night and early morning of March 23rd to 24th stated they remembered seeing Amy with a man named Alistair Douglas, a.k.a. Yellow, a member of Blue Orchid, the ship's band. You know... You start with a first name, Alistair, and then you go to a nickname of Yellow? (laughs) I don't know if I trust this man. Well, he was a bass player, so... Oh, we're back in. (laughs) Some stated they saw Amy in an elevator with Douglas very early in the morning as well, before dawn, around the time where Brad had already gone to sleep, but the time was difficult to verify. Brad recounted to investigators a strange experience he had with Douglas a few hours after Amy had disappeared. Quote, I was sitting by the pool at a table and up walks this guy yellow. And the first thing he says is, oh, I'm sorry about your sister. I wasn't thinking at the time and was just sort of overwhelmed. And I was kind of like, yeah, thanks. But thinking back on it, Brad found Douglas's timing suspicious. Quote, there had been no announcement made. So what did he know happened to my sister? Douglas was actually in the last video made of Amy and is seen dancing with her in the club. At the Calypso party? Oh, after the Calypso party. Yeah, the nightclub. Brad also said later that Amy had told him, quote, the bass player had been hitting on her and he was a real jerk. Uh, It's interesting. 
It's very interesting that she would then choose to be on an elevator if she, in fact, chose to be there with him. Mm Mm-hmm. Douglas agreed to submit to a polygraph test and seems nonchalant, uh, seemed nonchalant about the whole situation. Um, not admissible in court. How did he do on the polygraph? Uh, he, I've read that it's inconclusive, but he was also like let go basically out of custody after the polygraph. So To be clear, every polygraph is inconclusive. Yeah, bunk science. He came out of interviews smiling with his thumbs up to the band members, said Ron. So basically like, oh, I did a good job in there. Douglas, of course, said he knew nothing about Amy's disappearance during interviews. Um, The waiter that had asked Amy about Carlos and Charlie's was also identified as Eduardo Cabrita, and he was interviewed as well by the FBI. Now, I found the following information on the site amybradleyismissing.com, which is kind of like an amateur investigative forum, like a web sleuth sort of thing. So, Oh, it's so, it's so rare for something like that to spring up around an unsolved case on the internet. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is take it with a grain of salt. But it says, during the FBI interview, the waiter claimed that Ivor Bradley had questioned him about procedures when someone falls from the ship. Iva claims this discussion never took place, and she asked the FBI to give the waiter a polygraph. The polygraph was never given to the waiter, but the Bradleys are convinced that this waiter was involved because of his interest in Amy and taking her off the ship, and because he fabricated the story about this conversation with Iva. That is, I mean, that's weird. Yeah. Uh, to, To what end, do you think? Well, the speculation goes on that a kidnapping was probably originally planned for Aruba, And when she said no, uh, the Curacao Wharf with Alistair Douglas was likely the plan B. It would have been easier to kidnap Amy away from the ship and at night. And um, the the conclusion that they come to is that Eduardo Cabrita lied to the FBI and attempted to falsely incriminate Iva Bradley by making up this conversation he had with her. Oh, because the conversation was, in his mind then, the conversation is supposed to imply that Iva saw her daughter fall over the edge and is lying about it. Mm-hmm. Or some, or thinks that she did. I also spotted in different areas online that, um, the, you know, about the aforementioned elevator ride, these witnesses testified for a federal grand jury that they saw Amy Bradley and Alistair Douglas in the ship's glass elevator from their vantage point on the upper deck around 6 a.m. 6 a.m. is after she leaves the room with the smokes, Yeah. We don't have exact timing. But probably. Around that time, yeah. They also testified that Douglas left the upper deck afterward alone to take the glass elevator back down. Same witnesses. Mm-hmm. Could have been leaving. He could have left her up there just to get all the possibilities out there and play devil's advocate for a moment. He could have left her up there while she had her smoke, and then she could have tumbled over the side of the ship. A lot of could-haves here, Yeah. But either way, at this point, leads were really drying up, and the question of what happened in those three hours between 4 a.m. and 7 a.m. on March 24th and what happened to Amy remains a mystery. But we'll discuss leads, clues, and theories about what really happened to Amy Lynn Bradley after the break. Oh, thank God. I thought this was going to be a series of lighter, smaller stories, and this is, oh, I mean, not only a bummer, but a real, there's, there's, there's a lot here. Oh, There's so much more. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the 
must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back. When last we left you, we had just breached the surface, I think, on the Amy Lynn Bradley disappearance. Um, now, as as I said just before we went to break, Carrie, it, it seems to me that there is a world of possibility in which there was a tragic accident here, but, but there's also um, a lot of pointers towards some suspicious characters aboard this ship. Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed like a lot of pointers, actually. And then and then right before the break, you said there was a whole lot more to come. So I am um, nervously anticipatory. <laughs> yeah, so we've reached kind of the end of the main cruise. Uh, and the Bradleys once again had to make the agonizing decision to leave and fly home to Virginia without their daughter and sister, Amy. I truly can't imagine the pain of having to do something like that you know sean like you have two sisters so imagine one just disappearing on a trip and having to go home without her like it's gutting well and you can't be once you're leaving a foreign country to go home without your child it feels like you're not assuming they're gonna find her you're not expecting a happy ending anymore at that point yeah it's just horrible but there's nothing else you can do. You can't just live on this boat hoping she comes around, you know? You don't know where she is. Right, or wander from port city to port city. Mm-hmm. From Virginia, the Bradleys tried to do everything they could to pursue Amy's case, which is, of course, understandable. A website was set up with information about Amy, along with a tip hotline. The family started on the media circuit to bring attention to the case, and a reward was publicized for $260,000 for Amy's safe return or information leading to it. Can I ask why you mentioned she was a strong swimmer? Because a lot of people think that if she did fall overboard, she would have been able to swim. In the open ocean? For how long? That's what people bring up. I don't know. Because cruise ships are moving. Not like, you know, super... It's not like they're not moving. Mm -hmm. So if nobody sees... If you fall in and nobody sees you right away... It's going to leave you behind, and then you're just going to get tired and drown. Maybe, yeah. Like, people can't swim in the open ocean. That's not a thing. I know. Anyway, I'm not saying that she fell off the, the edge. It's something people bring up a lot. Yeah, I don't. I, I just don't think her sk- swimming skill comes into play uh, in any case here. But uh, uh, anyway. The FBI investigation also continued with Special Agent Bradley Bryant interviewing those in Amy's life to try and figure out what her current situation was. It didn't seem like there was much negative around Amy at this time. She was upbeat, happy, friendly. She had a ton of friends and family around her who all loved her and all raved about her. Oh, I was thinking, what's he looking for? Enemies? It's not like someone <laughs> followed her to um, Bahamas. No. Know, but... Uh, but no, he's he's looking to see if she was depressed or anything like that. Mm-hmm. There weren't any new leads from these interviews, but by creating a picture of who Amy was at the time of the disappearance, the investigators came to at least one conclusion. Amy had most likely, very, very likely, not committed suicide. Right. 
She was excited about starting her new job after the cruise. She had a positive outlook on life. She had plans that she was looking forward to. She'd even recently gotten a new dog. So it just didn't point to someone who would willingly take their own life. She also brought her smokes. Mm-hmm. True that. There were some strange clues discovered by the investigation that don't really have concrete paths attached to them, but I did want to mention them. At the formal dinner the Bradleys attended, a ship photographer took professional photos of the family, which is a common thing on cruises. My parents have one of me from ours years ago. And when Iva tried to retrieve these photos from the gallery, the gallery worker could not find them. Oh, it's like a um, splash mountain. Your picture has yes. been washed away. Mm-hmm. He said he remembered placing them out with the other photos taken at the same time, but that the ones of Amy alone had vanished. All that seemed to remain was a photo taken that night of Amy with her brother, Brad. Okay. So uh, does that strike you as harmless accident or... It uh, could be either is the thing. Killer removing the evidence or killer taking trophy. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it could be just like whoopsie doopsie, but it's a terrible coincidence to be the girl that goes missing. When I was in Disney World with my buddies in high school, it was because we were making hand gestures that the <laughs> pictures were washed away, but I, that's probably not the case here. There also might be a, a third option where it's people from the cruise uh, taking away pictures of her because they don't want like people to see her which is something that um we come back to later mm. they don't want any of the other passengers to be like that's the girl that's missing you know oh right so so maybe not the killer doing something shady but the cruise line doing something almost as shady to mm -hmm. uh, to just uh, just avoid the subject altogether mm -hmm. sure but then but then maybe send the pictures hey guys exciting news for all the passengers we are giving you your photos directly this this on this cruise so <laughs> You know, give the parents their, their picture of their daughter. people still had to buy them. Ah. So they might have just been cheap and, and... Okay, new, new plan. Just give that one to the parents. Yeah, maybe. Ron and Brad Bradley headed back down to Curacao a month after the disappearance to try and drum up more leads. Uh, they were passing out flyers with the reward information. They were talking to dozens of locals and tourists. And they tried to comb the area as best they could. Soon, a tip finally did come in. Ron told Disappeared, quote, I was approached by an old island guy who's a taxi driver, and he said, are you the father of the girl that's missing? Okay. Now, uh, it was a news story, right? Yes. And they were actively passing out flyers and publicizing the thing. I replied, yes, I am. And he said, I want you to know that your daughter did not fall from that ship. She's here on this island, and I hope you can find her. This, of course, stunned Ron and Brad, and the driver went on to say he spoke to Amy face-to-face -face when she approached his cab asking if he knew where a phone was. And he suggested to them three places on Curacao where the father and son could try to look for their daughter and sister. Here's my problem. How does that situation happen? Because now you, now you have to believe that she was kidnapped, brought onto the island forcibly, mm -hmm. and then escaped and then was captured again. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a couple of those. So he suggested a resort on the south coast of the island, which the men described as a ghost town, and two other places that weren't specified uh, in the show, but they did check, and they just hit dead ends at all three. 
the next day as the men were wandering through the neighborhoods of... Why would she be at a resort that's a ghost town? Like it was closed? No. Well, they said it was a ghost town, but basically, you know, she could have been taken anywhere. The next day, as the men are wandering through the neighborhoods of Curacao, Brad hears something that shakes him to his core. As the traffic lights turn on the road and cars begin to drive by, Brad heard a voice call, Brad. It apparently sounded exactly like Amy calling his name from a car passing by. Now, this is kind of sketchy, and I don't know how exactly this next part goes, but they managed to approach the vehicle. But once they caught up to it, it just seemed like there was one person inside the car who was like a stranger. So it was a dead end. Amy wasn't in the car. You knock on the car window? I, I'm not exactly sure how it happened. They just kind of sum it up I've, in I've the run show. into plenty of research like yeah. this, yes. So Ron and Brad were forced to leave the island two days later, having uncovered no more leads. Meanwhile, back in Virginia, Iva got news from Curacao that a woman's body with brown hair and a similar frame to Amy's had been found in the water. Dutch authorities on Curacao began to examine the body to try and determine the identity, and it wasn't Amy. So it was just a terrible blip, uh, but nothing concrete. Just another random dead tourist. Yeah. For the next year and change, both the Bradleys and the FBI received a ton of tips about Amy's case, tips that were diligently followed up on each time, but nothing stuck. In May 1999, Amy's case was featured on an episode of America's Most Wanted, which at the time was at the height of its popularity during its 15-year run with cops as Fox's most stable primetime programming block, because people love crime. Did you ever watch either of those shows as a kid, Sean? Um, enough, yes, en- enough that the um, cops theme song is, <laughs> is, you know, indelibly imprinted in my mind. Um, but really, you know, it wasn't like my, my mom hated having cops on. <laughs> so uh, it, it didn't stay on for very long. I think that might be the first, the first sparks of interest in true crime for me, because I remember vividly uh, my poppy, who was a Portuguese immigrant, um, he watched them religiously, uh, which was not appropriate when they were looking after me because this is, I would have been, you know, three, four, five, not, should not be watching cops. Um, but I, I watched it so much with him that I was able to sing the theme song upon request. Uh, yes, I've seen some of those videos. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think that's the first time that I ever thought about crime as a child. Yeah. That bad would, boys, bad boys, what you going to do? That would make sense. Um, <laughs> C- Cops was classic uh, early Robin McCabe. That's my mom. Robin McCabe, um, <laughs> you know, do, doing her. Oh, this is stupid. This is this is yeah. just how do you watch this? This is stupid. And t- turning turning it up. <laughs> Leaning forward. <laughs> yeah, my, my poppy just just loved loved it. I don't know. I'm sure it was very exciting to watch. But back to America's Most Wanted. Uh, after seeing this particular episode, a Canadian scuba diver named David Carmichael immediately recalled seeing a young woman on a Curacao beach the August before. And that would have been five months after Amy went missing. After seeing Amy's case on the show, Carmichael deeply believed that it was her he'd spotted in Curacao, being led by a couple of aggressive men, as he described it. Uh, He stated the woman looked just like her and, in fact, could recall a specific detail that would add credence to the sighting. On her left upper back shoulder blade area, 
Amy had a, or has, hopefully, a distinctive tattoo of the baby Tasmanian devil character from Looney Tunes, wearing one of those little propeller hats and spinning a basketball. Dizzy Devil. Sure. That's from Tiny Toon Adventures, yeah. Okay. Well, Dizzy Devil then. Yeah, he has a little propeller beanie. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was a tattoo that Amy had designed herself, maybe as a tribute to her basketball playing days. And it was this image that Carmichael swore to spotting tattooed on the woman in Curacao. Well, there can't be that many dizzy devils out there. What was the woman doing? She was being like escorted by aggressive men. So I assume like they were like pulling her along or whatever. That's how the reenactment depicted it anyway. (laughs) The FBI followed up immediately in Curacao, even though it was, you know, a while later. But since they were outside of American jurisdiction, it was difficult for them to operate on the island. They always had to respond to the local authorities and things like that. Agents combed the beaches for Amy, but without any other tips, nothing came of the supposed sighting. Well, I don't think the if she's being led around by these uh, these pimps, I, I don't think that they're bringing her to the beach. Like, maybe that's not the best place to look. Maybe it's, like, shacks in deeper into the cities. Yeah, I mean, all they knew was she was on the beach, so that's the only place I know where to look. Yeah, this this seems like a weird choice. In late 1999, a family acquaintance suggested to the Bradleys that they utilize a special forces friend of theirs as a private investigator to help track Amy down. The man, Frank Jones, said he specialized in missing cases and began to utilize his contacts in Curacao for the case. Frank Jones sounds so familiar. Well, it's a vague name. Within days, he relayed a tip. Amy was still on the island and has been spotted several times on the beach with various men. The Bradleys gave Jones $24,000 for travel and expenses to continue his investigation, Jones and his team did follow up with a fellow ex-Special Forces guy named Tim Buckholtz working with him on the case. Now, the team is told that Amy's being held against her will, and they were pointed to a specific house with certain local drug dealers that were apparently handling her in captivity. It seemed that maybe these drug runners were planning on asking for a ransom for Amy's safe return. Jones requested more money from the Bradleys to begin planning a rescue operation, but they came back with a request of proof of Amy's whereabouts so they could validate the claims before paying out more. Yeah, for sure, especially because of how long it's been. Mm-hmm. How long How long was it at this point? A um, couple years, maybe yep. a little less. So people don't ask for ransom after a few years. Yeah. Jones sent along photos uh, of a young woman on the beach with unidentified men. And this is taken from behind. So you just see the the backs. Uh, From what is shown, one of the men is white and has like a platinum blonde ponytail. And the woman who is supposedly Amy is wearing what looks to be a simple black bikini bathing suit or maybe like a sports bra um, with a wide sun hat. The woman has a towel over her shoulder and appears to have similarly placed tattoos to Amy. The Bradleys were satisfied by this, and they wired Jones $100,000 to put in place the operation to get Amy back. So they were like, this is her. I guess they were hoping. Jones told the Bradleys he's going to launch the mission in October 2000 and has all the necessarily, uh, necessary information needed. He's just planning it all. They're told to fly to Miami and have a jet standing by to fly to Curacao and extract Amy on his notice. By Jones. Mm Mm-hmm. Iva packed bags for Amy. 
She lined up doctors to see her for physical and mental care. They were very ready to see their child again. Yeah. (sighs) The Bradleys sat by the phone in their Miami hotel room waiting for days on end to hear from the investigator. After a week, Jones finally called the Bradleys with bad news. The mission had to be aborted as some of the men on Jones's team were injured in a firefight with Amy's captors. What? Yeah. So it was another dead end, another return to Virginia empty handed. But wait, but he knows where she is and who has her. Well, Sean, the intrigue didn't stop there. Tim Buckholtz, the aforementioned member of Jones's team, called the Bradleys soon after and told them that Frank Jones was a fraud. I goddamn knew it. I knew it. Mm-hmm. Buckholtz was eavesdropping when Jones called the Bradleys while purportedly staking out the bungalow where Amy was being held, but was actually just sitting in the hotel bar saying that's what he was doing. What a piece of shit. Did he actually go to the Bahamas or, or to Curacao? He was in Curacao, I believe. I guess it's a nice place to do <sighs> your scam. It seemed Jones was spinning tales of intelligence missions and gunfights while simply spending the desperate Bradley's money to live big in Curacao. Maybe he did chase down a couple of tips, but he was just making up all the information he got. So the family told the FBI and agents apprehended Jones after the the man fled Curacao to fly into Virginia, which was a strange choice. Um, yeah, so he he extradited himself, basically? He was fleeing to America. Uh, but they knew it was him, and they got him as soon as his flight landed. And he was fleeing the American authorities? I don't... He's, he's an idiot. He's not a great investigator, obviously. No. Jones would eventually be indicted for mail and wire fraud, and is sentenced to five years in prison and to pay back the Bradleys. So but, he's served that at this point. Yeah, at this point, yeah. In May 2002, a former U.S. naval officer came forward with a new tip. Four years earlier, near the time of the disappearance, he had encountered a young woman in a Curacao brothel who he was now convinced, after seeing her story on, I think, People magazine, um, he was convinced it was Amy Bradley. Inside the brothel, this woman, Amy, leaned over and told the man, my name is Amy Bradley and I need your help. The officer stated that she was being held against her will and was not allowed to leave, but decided to not report the incident at the time because he feared repercussions from the Navy for visiting a brothel. Well, this is, I mean, this might turn into another Frank Jones and you're going to tell me this guy's full of shit anyway, (laughs) but um, I got to say, when you put yourself in in the frame that way, when when you put yourself in having, like he's describing himself doing something naughty... Naughty, um, and then also making a terrible choice to just leave this woman there. A terrible this is real. moral choice to save his own career at the uh, cost of her life. Mm-hmm. So I kind of believe this guy. When he retired four years later, which four years, like, was it really worth not telling for four years in the Navy? Oh, yeah. He's got to get those those four <sighs> extra years of Navy paychecks. He retired, and he saw media coverage of Amy's story. So he finally admitted to the sighting. Maybe he was afraid they would take his GI Bill away. What did he go to school for? I don't know. We don't even know his name. The FBI did follow up on this lead, but unfortunately, the brothel had since burned down to the ground. So there was no one left to ask about it. Another tip came in 2005. A photograph was sent to the Bradleys of a woman that the sender thought could be Amy. It was a picture of what appeared to be a white woman with shoulder-length brunette hair and heavy makeup 
posing on a bed in very little clothing. The image was pulled from a website promoting prostitution in the Caribbean. The listing the photo was attached to was for a sex worker called Jazz, like uh, J-A-S, promising an all-inclusive erotic vacation for $2,750. Ron and Iva Bradley felt it looked very much like it could be their daughter, and a facial comparison expert agreed that, in his opinion, it was Amy. So what's next? Well, if this was true, Amy Lynn Bradley had likely been a victim of sex trafficking. But I, yes. Without the ability to find the woman or determine authenticity, the case hit another dead end. They just couldn't find her. Later that year, and this was not covered in the Disappeared episode, but uh, more recently, a tourist named Judy Maurer reported seeing a woman in her 30s fitting Amy's description in Bridgetown, Barbados. The woman st- spoke to Maurer in the women's bathroom, seeming distraught and saying her name was Amy and that she was from Virginia, before two men burst into the room and violently dragged the woman away. What year was this? 2005. She reported it. Um, I'm not sure when she had seen her. This is crazy. Mm-hmm. And sadly, that's the most recent lead we have in the case of Amy Lynn Bradley. Her story has not vanished from the public eye. In 2010, a human jawbone washed up on the beach in Aruba after Hurricane Thomas. It was tested against Natalie Holloway's dental records, but when it wasn't a match, for some reason, it was not continually tested, even though Bradley and several other tourists had disappeared within the 15 years before the Holloway case. The tests did state that the jawbone belonged to a younger Caucasian female, but we don't know if it could be Amy. Why doesn't why don't they go ahead and do those tests? Where's the jawbone? I don't know. I don't know. I assume it's the Dutch authorities, so you gotta ask them. Disgustingly, a novel called Invincible was published in twenty fourteen dramatizing Amy's case, with some details from the Natalie Holloway disappearance sprinkled in, and it was turned into a twisted romance story where a Navy SEAL finds a kidnapped girl in an Aruban brothel and I guess tries to rescue her. Um, okay. So, yeah, it's a smut book. It's a romance. Um, a lot of people on Goodreads who read romance seem to enjoy it. It doesn't seem like many people who are making reviews understand that this is just ripped from the, the U.S. Navy guy saying he saw Amy at the brothel. And this is just turned into um, smut, and it's truly sick. Yeah, because it's it's the end of someone's life and livelihood. Yeah, and at the very least, you're you're saying uh, that sex trafficking can be sexy. Like it's weird. Well, no, it's the rescuing. I think it's always the rescuing. Yeah, that's but the the, sexy part. the main character is a Navy SEAL who apparently is a bit of a bastard, going to a brothel full of what he calls Aruban whores. But once he realizes one of them is an American, a white lady. Yeah, then he's like, oh, I must rescue her. But if they were just a Reuben whores, I'm sure he would have just left them there. It's really sick. And it has caused the Bradley family a lot of pain. Apparently, they have spoken out about it. Now, the person who is my biggest suspect, allegedly, if foul, foul play did indeed befall Amy Bradley, is Yellow? Is Alistair Yellow Douglas. And he was cleared after his polygraph, apparently, during the FBI investigation. It seems since the events on the Rhapsody of the Seas, he's found religion, 
and he refuses to discuss Amy's case. He had a YouTube page for a while, uh, which is still up, where he posted music videos and things like that, like gospel music, with many of the comments asking about Amy. But the most recent videos from 2014. Well, uh, if there's one thing I can say for certain, it's that no religious person has ever committed sexual assault. So uh, I don't think he was involved. (laughs) Now, this is a very interesting tidbit I found at the very end of my research. But speaking of videos, um, there's this blog post that I discovered by a guy named Chris Fenwick on his website, chrisfenwick.com, titled Amy Bradley is Missing, and it details his involvement with the case. Fenwick was working on Rhapsody of the Seas in 1998 as a video producer for the ship. Did he take the video from the nightclub? We're, we're, we're getting there. Uh, here are some things Fenwick wrote in his post. So um, the, the rest of this is going to be directly lifted from the block. Around Thursday afternoon, March 25th, during my short visit to the edit suite, a crew member named Steve casually informed me that he had been instructed by the ship's security to make sure there were no images of the missing girl in his cruise video, the type of videotape that you would buy at the end of your cruise showing all the great things you had done all week on board. So this is the day after she's gone missing. This is totally gross, obviously, but it doesn't surprise me. You can't have her in that video. That Mm -hmm. that part makes sense. If you're going to still sell a video after this (sighs) cruise... So weird. Sometime late the night of Friday, March 26th, probably around 3 a.m., I took another walk to stretch my legs. It was not unusual for me to work all night and sleep during the day. While I was standing on the eighth deck, my deck, looking over the large center atrium of the boat, I witnessed two young girls, probably around 19 or 20 years old, walk to the stern of the boat on the starboard side. Minutes later, a young man ran from where the women had walked toward the bow of the boat. Soon, a woman with blonde hair and another gentleman and at least one man from Royal Caribbean began to congregate on what may have been the sixth deck across from where I was standing. They began to question the two young girls. It was around this time that it became obvious to me that the people I was watching was the family of the missing girl. I was curious as to why this meeting was taking place in the middle of the night and being wide awake, I decided to eavesdrop and find out what I could. Apparently, the two girls had seen Amy Bradley, the missing girl, during the early morning hours of the day she vanished. They were trying to find out anything and everything that the two girls had seen. So I have a feeling these are probably the uh, elevator girls. The ones who saw yellow? The witnesses, yeah. What I witnessed was the older woman, uh, immensely distraught, and I overheard her saying, please think very carefully, did you see anything else? Are you sure you didn't hear anything else? Are you sure you didn't see anything else? The poor woman was so frantic, I just remember everyone trying to get her to calm down and be cool. Later, I found out her name was Iva Bradley. After seeing the frantic nature of the woman, it kind of put the humanity on the story for me. It dawned on me that the woman had disappeared on Tuesday morning, and we had heard that she had been in the disco on Monday night. If that was the case, we were in the disco with one of our cameras on Monday night. Maybe I had some video of Amy in my room or on one of my videotapes. I returned to my room and began scanning through the tapes that would have been shot on that night. Amazingly enough, on the last tape of the night and the last shot on the tape, there was indeed a shot of Amy dancing on the dance floor. And the part that was really creepy to me was that the shot revealed that Amy was dancing with yellow. The man had been the man that was suspected of having something to do with her disappearance. Immediately, I got out a blank beta SP tape, a broadcast tape format, and made a component, a component level dub of the master tape showing Amy dancing with yellow. 
I wrote my name and room number on the tape label and put it in a box. I then returned to the location of the early morning meeting between the crew and the Bradley family and the two young girls. There was a man there, but the meeting had broken up. And then he says that he talks to the man who says he is close friends with the family and gives the man the copy of the tape to give to the FBI or the family or whoever. This is, this, this is where the story gets really interesting to me. Mid-afternoon on Friday, while I was in my room working, I received a phone call. The man on the phone told me his name was Lou Costello. I probably made some sort of joke about Abbott and. And he looked at me as he asked me if I was the guy with the videotape of the missing girl. I told him that, yes, I was. At that point, he told me he was going to have to get the tape from me. I informed him that there was no way I was going to give up my master tapes. I never give away master tapes, and besides that, it was on a tape format that I'm sure he didn't have access to. After all, I had seen the onboard edit facilities, and that I would be glad to make a broadcast-quality dub of the tape if he liked. He then informed me that the FBI were involved in this and that they would want the original tapes. I told him if that was the case and the FBI wanted my master tapes, that they would have to contact me. Yes! Thank you! (laughs) I also informed Mr. Costello that the entire reason for me being on this boat was to finish editing the tape that needed to air that night at midnight in the ship theater. So they would, like, show... Right, it's like, here's what you could purchase. Yeah. I would be done with my duties around 12.30 a.m. and I would be glad to help him or make copies or whatever at that time. However, would he please allow me to have the time that I needed to finish my job? At that, I believe Mr. Costello said he would be in contact with me later and he hung up. That was the last that I heard from Mr. Costello. I finished my job, packed my equipment, and the next day I got off the boat in San Juan, Puerto Rico and went home to San Francisco. So Costello was either working for the Shady Cruise Line or someone shadier. Well, he was the security director oh. or something like that. Okay. So working for the cruise line uh, to shady purposes, probably not looking to hand that over to the FBI. Mm-hmm. Months later, Chris Fenwick called the FBI about the tapes of Amy, but nothing came of it. It seems like he kind of forwarded on this tip and someone said, oh, we'll get back to you. And they never did. Classic bureaucratic bullshit. <laughs> Eventually, he saw the Amy Bradley story on Unsolved Mysteries, um, which didn't include the footage of Amy in the club. uh, And that kind of stood out to him. Like, why wouldn't you show that? So he got in contact with the family. Now, as I mentioned, Fenwick had given a copy of the tape to someone who was with the family on the cruise, or at least while they were looking. This guy's named Mike McCord. Apparently, the trip had been a business trip that was a perk to the salespeople in Ron's company. And so this was a co-worker? This was his boss, and he just happened to be present on the voyage, too. I'm a good friend of the family. Mm-hmm. I'll make sure to pass this along. Well, the Chris did see McCord eating breakfast with them at some point, so he knew that he knew them. Um, McCord had told Fenwick he'd forward the tape to the FBI, but soon after, Fenwick got the call from the ship's security director, Lou Costello. So, like, how did he find out right. the same day? So it seems like the FBI had never gotten it in the first place. And Costello, if he eventually received it, did not forward it on to them. So, Did the family get a copy of it? Only at this point, because from... Fenwick kept his master's and he sent it to the family. So what did the, so the boss took the tape and just didn't pass it along? Mm-hmm. Why? I assume because it shows one of the ship's employees with a, as a suspect with a victim possible victim uh, right before their death or disappearance. He doesn't work for the cruise line. 
Um, what's his face did? Yellow. He's part of the ship's no, band. No, I know. I know Yellow does, but but why why does? Um... Because it looks bad for the cruise right, if so it gets out. Why does this guy's boss, who was on the cruise, care if the cruise looks bad? Oh, I think I think it was a mistake. I think the boss got the tape to forward on, and then Lou Costello saw him with the family or whatever, and was like, "Hey, you know anything?" And he's like, "Oh, I have this tape that they actually just gave me," and he was like, "Oh, I'll take care of that for you." Oh, that's Costello what I disappeared the tape. Yes, that's what I think happened. Just I don't like think McCord was like involved, and he tried to do this with the masters. Yeah, he he wanted the Masters, and Fenwick was like, no, no one ever gets my Masters, which, good film guy moment. That's TM. Ding! (laughs) Um, So yeah, so that's kind of the last bit uh, that I found about this, but it's just so weird. It's such a weird little additional detail to this. Um, And there has been a resurgence of interest in Bradley's case, obviously with the popularity of true crime media. And I think the family would view that as a net good because the more people know about Amy, the more people can keep an eye out for her or try to remember things. Well, I, I, I unfortunately, I, I don't know that there's a happy ending for her in this. But, but I do think publicizing this story maybe hopefully helps other people to um, be aware of the dangers that are out there. Absolutely. Especially on cruises. And maybe don't take for granted that other people are looking out for you. Yes, absolutely. So what do you think happened to Amy Lynn Bradley? Oh, this is a real, real bummer. Um, top to bottom. There's, there were so many chances for justice to be approached at least here and nobody except the family. And that one video guy seems to have cared at any point. Mm-hmm. And the FBI people that were interviewed on disappeared, they seemed genuinely like they had been trying, but there was only so much that they could do. Uh, a lot of it's up to the Dutch authorities or the cruise ship security or whatever. It's just tough. Why don't the Dutch authorities want the FBI looking, you know, doing a good investigation in Curacao? I don't know. I don't know. It might just be jurisdictional stuff. Like, that we get from county to county or whatever. You know, it must be very complicated between countries. Sure. Is it a woman's life complicated? I mean, look at what happened with Natalie Holloway. There were a lot of things in that case, and we'll go over that eventually, but... Politics and red tape. A lot of it. I think that she was kidnapped and... So, two possibilities. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's still possible that she went up to the top deck for a smoke, (laughs) fell off the edge, and... If that's the case, she was never seen again. She drowned and uh, all of the other stuff was red herrings. But given how many other little crop ups there have been, I mean, you you can get little false leads and stuff. Little red herrings can can grab a grieving family's um, There's been a lot of them. Though, attention, yeah. but there's been a lot of them. So uh, I think the most likely scenario is this woman was kidnapped and trafficked. And this was 22 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and if, Almost 25 now, 1998. And, and so... It doesn't bode well. And I don't think... I think, unfortunately, it's probably something that happens m- much more frequently than we would like to imagine. Well, here's the thing. There's been a bit of a, a craze the last few years about 
fears of sex trafficking and it, it could movie, happen to you. It's and, since the movie Taken came out. Yes, lots of fears for young white women and children, which there always have been, right? Um, and so a lot of people online certainly have had kind of a knee-jerk reaction of, well, you think everything with a, a white woman going missing abroad is sex trafficking, you know? I think it's a possibility here. Um, well, really, there's two options, like you said. Some kind of foul play, which it could include purposeful, like uh, kidnapping, kidnapping into to trafficking, um, murder. She could have been pushed, right? Sex assaults turn into murder mm-hmm. a lot. Um, could be an accidental foul play. You know, maybe someone's trying to come on to her, trying to get handsy. She's struggling. They're near a railing. She goes over. Or maybe Amy was standing at the railing on the balcony with her cigarettes and lighter. Maybe she's feeling hungover or sick because that's why. I mean, we know she wanted to stay in the fresh air. So maybe that's why she swayed or went to throw up over the railing and she went overboard. Um, railings are, they're not like person height, but they're not low railings. You can't just trip and fall over them on a cruise. So it's not waist high. Yeah. But I mean, there have been things where like a big wave comes and you kind of fall over it because of the tilt. So could that have happened? Maybe. Uh, and that could have happened before Ron woke back up to find her gone. It could have even happened on the upper deck. Um, but it could explain why the cigarettes and lighter were gone. She was still holding them when she went over. I don't know. Now, there are many little, um, you know, kick-ups and, and loose threads. and um, But a lot of them, her brother hearing, I, I could picture hearing your missing sister's voice on, yeah. in a crowded street. That wouldn't surprise me as a figment of a, of a grieving imagination. And I'm not casting aspersions mm-hmm. on, on um, Brad or anyone Absolutely else in the story, not, obviously. Yeah. Now, uh, for our listeners, you can find more information about Amy Lynn Bradley at FBI.gov on her missing persons page. Weirdly, uh, Amy would be turning 48 today, uh, the day of this airing, May 12th. And when she went missing in 1998, she had short brown hair, green eyes, was five foot six inches tall and 120 pounds, athletic build. Along with the Tasmanian Devil spinning a basketball tattoo on her shoulder, Amy has tattoos of the sun on her lower back, a Chinese symbol on her right ankle, and a gecko lizard around her navel. And she also had a navel piercing and several ear piercings. So if you have any information, I, I doubt anyone does listening to the show, but I wanted to throw it in there. If you have any information about the disappearance of Amy Lynn Bradley, please contact your local FBI office or the nearest American embassy or consulate. And I want to emphasize, if you ever see someone who appears to need help or be in distress, please, please just tell someone in authority. It doesn't, don't worry about feeling foolish if they're not really needing help or whatever, just tell someone because you never know who you might help save. When in doubt, give a shit. That's one way to put it. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. 
You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects. In lighter news, it's Crying Saucers. CNN reports that a House panel will hold an open congressional hearing about UFOs next Tuesday, May 17th. Yeah! The first of its kind in over 50 years. Woo! They're real, baby! (laughs) The hearing will center on last year's Pentagon program, which released an assessment on unidentified aerial phenomena, detailing 144 reports of UFOs, of which they can only explain away one conclusively. And we talked about that on one of our news segments before. Not a high percentage there. Not a high percentage. (laughs) No. The hearing will be held by the House Intelligence Committee's Subcommittee on Counterterrorism, Counterintelligence, and Counterproliferation, and will start at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. It's to be followed by a classified hearing on the aforementioned Pentagon program, and this one will be closed to the public. Um, the it it's worth noting which subcommittee is taking that up because it does imply that the government's belief is that the majority of these <laughs> are the work of other countries yes. and not other uh, planets. Mm-hmm. Though who knows what it'll be, you know, down to um, in terms of jurisdiction. I guess if we do find aliens. In a statement, Indiana Democratic Representative Andre Carson, the chairman of the subcommittee holding the hearing, said, The American people expect and deserve their leaders in government and intelligence to seriously evaluate and respond to any potential national security risks, especially those we do not fully understand. Of course, poo-poo on the parader, Arkansas GOP Rep Rick Crawford the top Republican on the relevant House Intelligence Subcommittee, questioned the move to hold the hearing with the other worldwide security concerns at present. Quote, with China and Russia developing hypersonic weapons and the Biden administration leaking alleged U.S. military operations in Ukraine, we have far more serious intelligence threats than flying saucers, said Crawford. Um, hey, Crawford, we don't know what these are. <laughs> I wonder if he'd feel the same way after being abducted or... I don't know, maybe blown up by another country. I don't know. Yeah, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be great if we identified them though? <laughs> exactly. So more info to come, but keep an eye out next week. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary, and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify.
we'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And special thanks to our beloved top tier patrons already joining us over there on Patreon. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, and Christy Atchison. And guys, if you could jump on the Discord and let us know uh, what kind of upcoming Patreon content you're most interested in. Because um, we've got mini-sodes ready to go. Um, we've been meaning for a while to watch... Um, a couple of movies and throw some sort of movie reaction type things up there. So let us know if that sounds interesting. Um, more reading uh, reading to each other, more reading time with Poe and Lovecraft. Um, we'd love to do uh, whatever you're interested in. So let us know and um, then come and support us. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McKay. Music by Kyle Ryan. And you can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty, and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the Cheesewire Killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts.